Navigating the Datascape with Warner Chavez and special guests. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Datascape podcast. Today, I have with me Paul Lewis, Pythian's Chief Technology Officer, to talk about everything related to the IT industry and obviously the data space in specific. Paul, please say hi to our listeners and give us an intro by yourself. Hello, hello, and thank you for having me. Uh, I am, in fact, Paul Lewis, <laughs> Chief Technology Officer for Pythian. I've been here just over a year. It's been great. Enjoyed my time, enjoyed the people, uh, enjoyed the practices. Uh, before that, I was a global CTO for Itachi, and then before that, spent a good portion of my time operating IT, large IT systems, and 29 data centers, and 5,000 workloads. It's It's been an adventure moving from you know, caring what happens at 3 a.m. to being on the other side where I have to care about hundreds of clients at 3 a.m. Uh, it's been a it's been a fun jump. So how how did you find this transition from obviously dealing with a big, massive space like Itachi to more of you know as a medium sized, smallish sized business like Pythian? How how are you? feeling this transition like what is it about it you, you like or things that you don't like like you know how, how are you managing with that well definitely the ships turn differently right <laughs> yeah, i assume big, so big, big ship much smaller right however it's a much bigger ship right we're talking you know 100 billion dollars 338,000 people yeah exactly skill sets a lot of skill sets right uh, i can find people if i needed to find people Whereas in a smaller organization, you don't have that, right? You don't have the same kind of internal scale and therefore you need partnerships to deliver on it. Uh, but I do like the nimbleness of a small organization. Mm -hmm. If we do see an opportunity or a practice that is a gap that we can fill on, we can just go and hire those people, right? We can find those resources and find that skill. Uh, and and you know change directions when we need to if we see security being important we can invest in security if we see snowflake being important we can invest in snowflake whereas in a much larger organization that might be a six-month strategic conversation mm -hmm. right yeah, and then eventually say this makes a sense. lot of people yeah <laughs> right okay and, and now you mentioned about nimbleness and this is a topic that i definitely wanted to talk uh, to you about and is covid and the aftermath of covid for you know, the chief chief information officers, the chief uh, technology officers around the world. What do you think are the priorities right now after going through the pandemic and kind of like what happened, like the sudden move to remote work, sudden uh, change in the marketplace as well for staffing, right? Uh, Fresh, just uh, I'm sure you saw that uh, uh, last week, I think Airbnb also announced that they're going to allow people to work from anywhere in the world. And uh, apparently, according to the to Airbnb, they said that after the CEO made the announcement, the next day they had like one million uh, people uh, check in their careers page. Suddenly, now everybody thinks they can work for Airbnb. So anyway, <laughs> point being is is how how do you see people are dealing now? What are the priorities now in the aftermath of COVID, and how did COVID impact how these priorities shifted to what people were doing pre-COVID? So lots of dimension to that, but let, let's start with the people dimension as you as you were talking about. So 
There are very few global organizations as compared to local organizations, right? The vast majority of IT shops likely had a building, had a floor, mm -hmm. had a section of a floor. All the IT organization went nine to five every day, you know, delivered Sat as down. a team yeah, yeah in, in person, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and that changed dramatically. And yes, while one could theoretically work for lots of different global organizations and live anywhere in the world, that's not really how most IT shops worked, right? Mm -hmm. uh, the the most people who uh, lived and worked in, you know, relative commute distance to the office, and therefore they went back home, right? They worked from home. And there was an assumption by CIOs and CTOs that since that was mostly true, people would mostly want to come back to the office and they're suddenly realizing, and by suddenly, I mean, within 2022, that's in fact not true, mm -hmm. right? They don't want to come back, even if they're literally across the road from the office. <laughs> I love working at home, right? I have the freedom to put in my 40 hours, but that could be in two hour shifts, right? Yeah. I might in fact more work 50 or 55 hours because I have the luxury of working those 55 anywhere I want to work, right? Yeah. At any time. And for those IT shops that were in fact global, people who, who moved back home or moved to a different state or even a different country simply don't want to come back to the originating state. They don't want to pay yeah. those taxes. They don't particularly like that culture. It's not that they fear COVID coming back to the office. They just enjoy the freedom that they've received. And while a CIO might have thought, you know, 10 to 15% might not want to come back, it's much more like 55, 60% yeah. want to come back. Well, that's a pretty dramatic change in ITs. So a CIO is now thinking, well, how do I deal with all the capital I've invested? And by that, I mean the uh, addresses, right? Yeah. How do I deal with the um, cultural aspect of being continuing virtual? Um, and how do I think about creativity versus collaboration? How does that change over time based on where people are going to be in this world? And then finally, legally, what's the impact to the individual person? So if, if I'm used to working out of Manhattan, but I moved back to Florida, well, those are different taxation requirements yeah. that me as the company has to worry about, you as the individual has to worry about. So what's the implications to my thousand person IT team because of that? I wanted to get your personal opinion on this. Do you believe that there is a, an actual material impact on culture and or, and or productivity between work from home and working in person from an office? I certainly don't think there's a productivity impact. In fact, if anything, product productivity improves when you have the freedom to, to you know, be creative on your own time. Right. The reality is, very few IT jobs are task jobs. Sure, mm -hmm. there's service desk, contact center. Sure, there's routine things you have to do. But the vast majority of IT is a creative endeavor, right? And creativity might spark to you at 4 a.m. It might spark to you at 9 p.m. It doesn't have to spark between 9 a.m. and 5 p.m. So, yeah. so I think IT is way better, more productive. And, and by productive, I don't mean amount of work being produced, I mean quality of work being mm -hmm. produced when you have the freedom to produce it when you want to produce it. So big advocate of 
of controlling your own domain. And if that means working at home or working somewhere other than nine to five in an office, then great, uh, fully support that. Do I think team creativity where necessary is declining because of it? Yes. So if we're, if if we need five different perspectives to create from scratch, where we would normally sit a room for two, three hours with a blank whiteboard and draw and erase and mm -hmm. go up and X things out and put some sticky notes on, I think that becomes way more difficult in the virtual world. Okay. So I kind of like the concept where the offices change from a place to which I work to a place to which I meet. Okay. And I'm only there once every three weeks for a couple, three hours and meeting with the team and doing something creative, not just to meet to talk about our day, but to mm -hmm. meet and solve a complex problem or invent something new that requires more than just my thought process. Yeah. I mean, uh, so th that's a good, really good point. So the whiteboarding process, it is, it is very, uh, you know, kludgy still virtually, right? Even though there's mm -hmm. a lot of tooling right now for it there's still you know there's there's still not quite like the same thing right and even though like i said you can still throw in a whiteboard virtually and some people i have a, a wake home tablet right with the pen and everything and i've used it quite a bit um over the last two years but most people haven't even bothered to to do that and sometimes it does get kind of complicated for people to yeah the single picture is great ideas, right but imagine if you had a room full of pictures and diagrams and thoughts and you know lists you have to scan through all those pictures in order to say, hey, back back on page seven when we said yeah, A versus yeah, yeah. B, it really should be B versus A. Yeah. <laughs> it's the same thing, right. like, you know, uh, like when people, you know, move from um, like physical books to now everybody just has like a Kindle or an iPad or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm the same, like I have a Kindle and the Kindle, I have a thousand books and that's fine, right? Obviously, I'm not going to carry a thousand books if I had physical books, but Sometimes you're like, ah, where in the book did it say or did it talk about something? And you don't even know exactly like the words that were used. And obviously you just open the book and you just start like quickly passing pages, trying to like recognize and your brain kind of works well doing that. Right. But right. when you're in the Kindle, if you can't figure out the right keywords, that's it. Right. <laughs> you, you, you can't do the same thing. Right. So there's some there's some things that I guess humans are built uh, to do in an, an, an analog way that doesn't translate that well to digital. Right? I wonder if that has to do with school, right? And I'm like, we're of different ages, but when we both went to school, we had textbooks in front of us physically. Yeah, I'm not I'm not that young that, uh, <laughs> that I went to school with an iPad. Actually, uh, I'm like the last, probably, I'm like the last generation that grew up um, without internet. So I remember I was 12 when my parents got internet for the first time. And it was like, a, you know, a 14400, remember? The 14400 modems the speed was <laughs> what's that like two, two kilobytes per second right yeah right. so anyway moving to more modern things so aside from the the staffing perspective let's move to the to the technical side like mm -hmm. i assume this same phenomenon probably put a scare on some of the sea levels in terms of remote capabilities in terms of secure delivery in terms of maybe cloud usage as well, right? Not dependent so much on physical on-prem presence. Like, how do you see those, the actual tech um, priorities uh, to attack now post-COVID? So security is a great concern where um, I had much more control when 
not just IT, but the rest of the organization was in a physical location that I can mm-hmm. control, right? I could firewall off an address, which is great. I could determine who was coming in and out physically and digitally. It changed when not just IT went back home, but my entire organization went back home, where now I don't have one physical location. I have 5,000 physical locations. Yeah. And I don't control the firewall, right? I don't control the desktop environment. I don't control who's coming in and out of the office. And and <laughs> IT people are actually not that bad. IT people are pretty good at locking and unlocking their devices and stuff like that. It's I find the 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 more like general knowledge workers are really bad at this stuff, right? At the the security part. And some of them right. have access to super sensitive data and it's the same thing right you're giving them the green flag you gotta go home you gotta stay home in ontario right uh, even the government had a few days that it was forced unless you had to be at an office then the company was basically mandated to let the staff work from home right you you're right and it's these it's these task workers or non-it information workers that were the big concern right because now i'm at home and i don't have the same i I have the same sense of security because it's the same laptop to which the, the you know the my employer is providing me. But in a in a practical sense, if somebody's calling my house saying their IT saying giving me your password, my general assumption as a non-IT person is this must be correct because bad guys can't possibly know my home phone number. <laughs> yeah. that, that's just my philosophy because because IT went through the whole. Um, process of security training versus everybody else probably didn't go through the process of security training. They don't see the warning signs in an email. They're not thinking about people who are either in person or virtually phishing me, right? This, this, they just didn't go through that concept. And therefore the, the trust is too high as compared to the non it folks. Then of course, in general, since I now have 5,000 addresses instead of you know, a couple dozen addresses, I now have to think about data being both created and consumed at the edge mm-hmm. versus created and consumed in the data center. So now I have to think about data loss protection in the laptop um, as a camera coming into my office or even just my router and ISP for each one of those endpoints. Both data being created created, i.e. PIPEDA type information, Privacy Act information, or data consumed where I can download a spreadsheet and just make it available on the printer that's sitting beside me that anybody who happens to walk in could possibly take. Yeah, That's a yeah. huge burden, right? In uh, in the sense of collaboration, I think this is a ship that has sailed, but I want to get your, your take on it. Is, is everybody at this point just using Google Workspace, Office 365, like, is there any, especially, you know, obviously maybe smaller smaller shops might not be already into the online collaboration, but any sort of company of, you know, more than a few dozen people, everybody has moved into the online collaboration space at this point, I assume. 100%. So the, it's Office 365 or it's Workspace or it's Zoom. These technologies are more prevalent than meeting in person. Especially for the document management part, because you just mentioned, right? Like now I have people creating at the edge, but at least with online collab, like, you know, a workspace or an Office 365, you kind of have to just retrain them slightly to use the cloud documents, right? Right. So this is an area where definitely, you know, it's kind of like 
the way that exchange went, right? Nobody, almost nobody's running their own email anymore, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> so it's kind of like the same thing. Like people nowadays, it's like almost nobody is really doing everything locally with Office. Even if you are doing it, you yeah. sign in with your uh, the, your Azure AD account, let's say, and everything that you do in Office is getting synced to the cloud as well, right? Right. Do you think people rushed to the cloud during COVID, or did uh, is it something you know the people that were not going to it they just didn't take the plunge they managed with their remote staff do you think it actually did go up um do you think it's going to go up now actually when the kind of like the water has settled a little bit and people are thinking oh let's not get caught with our pants down again so that's an interesting question to which i differ from the norm so <laughs> as you can imagine i have lots of conversations with cios and ctos mm -hmm across a lot of different industries and across a lot of different countries. I think the use and implementation of cloud from a purpose perspective has changed over the last two or three years. Okay. It used to be cloud first, cloud only. It was a very, and they're not the same terms, I appreciate, but it was one of the two. Either I have a perspective where um, every, every new workload I create will always go in the cloud before anything else, or I plan on moving 100% of my workflow workloads, regardless of where they currently sit now, into the cloud. It has now evolved to cloud in addition. Okay. Right? I'm going to remain in my data center. I'm going to have edge type of analytics. I'm going to use SaaS products. I'm going to absolutely modernize to the cloud or lift and shift to the cloud or create new workloads in the cloud but it's gonna be one of many. And what you're seeing in terms of percentage of cloud use, yes, it's increased over the last five years, but it's absolutely slowing down. And it's absolutely slowing down because I've done the easy part, right? I've lifted and shifted the things that could easily lift and shift. I've modernized the utilities that were easy to modernize. I've created new applications in the cloud because it was better to start in the cloud. What we're finding is we're getting to the hard part, right? We're getting okay. to the applications that don't have source code. We're getting the applications yeah. that are... The vendor went bankrupt like five years <laughs> exactly. ago. Exactly. They're simply not current because we fail to remember that in the enterprise sense, up to 70% of applications and infrastructure are not supported by the original vendor to which I purchased them from. Okay. That yeah. creates... That's pretty high significant amount of legacy right to which i can't do much with or that the, it's ties that bind it's so integrated with the rest of a series of applications including mainframe and as400 and you know p series i series stuff that i can't abstract them enough to bring them out into a cloud modernized application mm -hmm. form so we're talking millions and hundreds of millions of dollars worth of potential effort there and I've said this frequently, you may have heard me say this before, a CIO can't walk into a CFO's office and say, you know what, all you need to give me is a billion dollars and I'll be able to recreate all of this amazing applications into the cloud. And the CFO will look at them and say, and ask the very first question, not, not why would I ever do this, walk away out of my office, it's going to be, Will the new applications do the exact same thing they currently do now? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And of course, you'd love as a CIO to say yes. But the true answer is no. 
<laughs> version one of the cloud environment is not the same as version 99 of the AS400 mm -hmm. environment. It's simply not going to be true. It might take a decade to replace the kind of features and functions in the new cloud-based platform. So basically, yeah. So there's there's no return of investment for a large amount of these legacy systems, right? Yeah, and I'll use the word core systems, right? A core uh, uh, um, banking system, a core ERP, a mm -hmm. core uh, warehouse management system. You know, the three or four core massive systems that potentially are 30 years old. And yes, they are. There are cloud versions of some of these commercialized products, like SAP, where you know we're an SAP provider. Uh, but we're talking tens or hundreds of millions of dollars to do that migration. And yes, yeah. you get functional advantages and even pricing advantages to support that. But these aren't lift and shift into IaaS, right? That's, no, no, absolutely. Not, we, and there's so many dependencies, point. right? That's the biggest one of the biggest issues we face when we do these migrations from on-premise unraveling the dependencies where the client themselves don't understand the dependencies and then we are basically brought in as an outsider to try to reverse engineer all the dependencies and some of them are really really tricky to capture right like you know the the one report that runs at the end of the quarter kind of thing right and it's like if you don't catch it while it's running you miss it completely um, and then there's nobody, nobody there. Right? And sometimes we even just have to go with, uh, you know, if you really want to do this, all I can say is, you know, let's do it. And then just keep a log of who complains after we turn off the, the original system, right? Because it's, right. it's just impossible to guarantee that we're going to capture all the dependencies. There's just too much you're, stuff. You're right. It, it's an ecosystem of utilities, right? You've got the core systems, but then you get the little circles, right? The little circles are are those daily, weekly, monthly jobs, or it's this one report for this one individual who may or may not still be employed. Um, yeah. Or, you know, but just when the... some client complains about something in particular, they follow like right. this exception process that requires like, you know, the thing. And if no client has complained for a few months, then it's like, well, it hasn't been running. There's no way to capture it. What's, what's the, you know, if we're let's talk, let's talking about transforming these legacy systems to cloud, in your opinion, what is a reasonable time for a return of investment to move something like that? Should it be like, you know, say in, in five years, it will, will if, you know, we'll be spending less than we spent on the migration. You mentioned just 10 years, right? Yeah. To be able to catch up in, in, in capabilities. Five is what difficult. do you think is? Five is difficult, two is a requirement. Now, fortunately, two? Two, well, two for each individual application. Fortunately, yeah. I don't think the whole application needs to migrate and modernize. Okay. I think you could piecemeal some of this, uh, some of this out, which is helpful, right? I could, e I could either, um, I could either think about abstracting the data from the applications, right? Where so the so that I can think of the database as a different migration as I do in the applications. I could piecemeal some of the functions out. So maybe there's a workflow engine or there's a business rule engine to which I could start to consume a cloud service. Um, or I could use things like address scrubbing where there's a, there's existing marketplace services that I could replace. Mm -hmm. I could I could wrap you know a mainframe service with a new UI 
um, that UI could be run and managed within the cloud. So I could start to piecemeal out and start to create APIs and start to create sort of a different integration pattern, whereas the core can remain in the existing environment, but the surrounding you know, UI, data, analytics aspects can be moved mm -hmm. to other parts, other other places of business. When you when you talk to to execs as well, do you feel like people have finally realized that you don't move to the cloud to save money? Or this is still something that people think like, you know, the path or the reason, the main primary driver to move to the cloud is literally just to save money. I think that's moved away. With the exception of productivity, I think people believe that cloud-based productivity tools is cheaper than than yeah. than delivered ones. Same I agree. Them. I wouldn't deliver yeah. e I mentioned just the, the email example, right? But we're yeah. talking so more desktop, about productivity, right? that kind of yeah. one. But but applications, you're absolutely correct. They have moved away from it being a cost savings. And in fact, if anything, they think it's more expensive. They also believe that the shift from CapEx to OpEx mm -hmm. hasn't necessarily been a good thing for them, right? Okay. Moving from CapEx to OpEx increases their IT budgets, even if it decreases the amount of capital to which we spend. The reality is, from a CIO's perspective, those were two different budgets anyway. So okay. shifting from one to the other by adding more OpEx, the total number actually got greater when you combine the both. What they do believe cloud is valuable for is things like automation, is things like agility, where I can make change in cloud faster than I can make them on-premise. Mm -hmm. um, it's better for consuming innovative services like the cognitive augmented reality type services, which they don't have access to internally. It's better for um, all the illities, all the non-functional requirements, better for performance, better for scalability, better for redundancy, where they didn't necessarily have that capability on premise. So that's where they see the advantage, right? The illities, the agility, and the and the potential use of services to which were not available on premise, like all the cognitive services. Okay, and the people that did go to the cloud, maybe with you know wrong expectations, let's say. Do you think we'll see a a wave of people that will migrate back to on-prem and just say like, no, this whole cloud thing was was for us. Let's just bring everything back to classic style. Or do you think once you move, you're kind of like you're there forever now, in, in, at least in in a fraction of your systems? Yeah. Well, some people have moved some workloads. Very few have moved you know all of their workloads back because it just doesn't make mm -hmm. a lot of financial sense to go one way then come back. I think I think what's much more likely to be true and is true from the conversations that I have is that they will stay there and earn all the additional value even though they now understand that it costs more to do so. Realistically, they're going to say to themselves, it's worth the 10 to 15% premium in order to get the ad agility advantages. It's worth mm -hmm. uh, the increase of my OPEX budget to support a scale to which I didn't have in the past, right? It's worth it to ensure that I have out of the box data protection and, and BCP. They're thinking that way versus bringing it back to put it under my control. With the mm -hmm. exception of one type of CIO, there still exists in this world, command and control CIOs, right? Who have been doing this job for 30 years 
they might have still been in their own organization for the last 25 of those 30 years. Mm -hmm. And they still believed if it's not in my data center, um, I don't have full and complete control and therefore full and complete control of the risk and therefore full and yeah. complete control of the budget. Those CIOs, in fact, still exist. You'll yeah. see them in 150-year uh, companies yeah. right? who produce a single product or have a specific financial service they deliver on. Okay. There is a good, and it's going to feel bad to you, there's a good 30% of those CIOs that still exist in the okay. world. Yeah. Do, do you do you find that people still also believe that they can achieve better security on-prem than moving? This is because this is another common misconception I run into every now and then when we do consulting is that somebody says, I can't go to the cloud because it's not secure, right? And this this kind of idea, like you think your your basement in your office is more secure than, you know, Microsoft's or Azure uh, or AWS's or Google's super regulated data center space. Right. Is, is that misconception still out there? Or you find like most people have understood actually that you get way better security up there actually than with it your on-prem system. In those 30%, that concept still exists. Yeah. <laughs> I'll take exception slightly only to the uh, government services where there mm -hmm. are clearly certain government services that will never go to the cloud given the type of data they store and the type of information that they passed around. Right. Mm -hmm. So you probably won't see a lot of DOD. Or DND, you don't see a lot of the NSA. Well, they have the private cloud, right? Instead, sure. Fa famous the Jedi, the Jedi project from the Pentagon, right? That um, I think it was Microsoft that wanted. Sure. Yeah, but there's also a patriotism thing. So what you'll find in especially the federal governments is that they will need to maintain a technical presence in almost all of their localities. Mm -hmm. So Canadian government is a great example where they would have 400 data centers because there's value in having an address in some city somewhere in Alberta, mm -hmm. and that address contains a couple servers, so that, in fact, they're participating in the local environment. So you're saying they're like spy stations, basically. <laughs> no, I'm saying that they need to have federal government staff, and those staff yeah. need to be around, uh, around more than just Ottawa. Right. Okay, but fair enough. But that's a that's a very public a very public sector requirement, yes. right? Yeah, but outside of public sector, I agree with you that it is rare that a CIO would be able to convince themselves or their team that they're better at security than any one of the hyperscalers. Yeah. They simply I, don't have the budget. They simply don't have the scale. They simply don't have the intelligence or expertise to deploy complex security models. They don't have the ability to do the research required there. They don't have the same access to the dark web. None of those things are true. And therefore, it's your workloads are much more likely to be much more secure somewhere other than your own data center. Mm. Those 30% uh... rarely argue about security. They <laughs> mostly yeah. argue about risk and control. Yeah. Because yeah. uh, especially with the past, past services, right? If you lift and shift VMs to the cloud, then you're not really getting all the advantages. But once you move into more of the platform services, mm -hmm. the surface area, it gets gets drastically reduced too, right? For example, we, we, we've we had before um, clients that got hit with ransomware, right? And some, some person, um, unfortunately, decided to open a silly email on like a high-privileged server and... 
and it just encrypts their database, right? For example, right, that happens. But if you're just running them on the cloud, then that can't happen because you don't have access to actually log in and shoot yourself in the foot, right? Which is what your administrator did opening the, the ticket to Disney kind of thing, right? Right. So that's something else that people don't don't seem to to appreciate as well too, right? Sometimes losing control is a good thing, right? You're giving the control to people that actually, you know, can protect it better than you can yourself. Right? That, that's actually a great point back to the previous point is, you know, where do I see cloud moving next? I think instead of focusing on the data center to cloud type conversation, we're, we're going to spend much more of our time in the moving from cloud IaaS to cloud PaaS. Mm -hmm. Whereas the most of the first migrations have been operating just like a data center, but in fact, just using the hyperscale, hyperscaler as the data center. Now I need to modernize those applications instead of just migrating into using cloud native services, right? I need to, in many ways, recreate those wheels mm -hmm. back into consuming the services right into the clouds themselves, yeah. shifting away from VMs into, into, in, into a world where I'm using the platform as originally designed. Yeah. And Historically, that, that's interesting too, right? Because... Um... Uh, I don't know if you remember, right? But uh, AWS was for a long time was the strongest one in just providing IaaS offerings, right? The mm -hmm. ideas of the, the you know the the VPC and put your all your VMs into it and the storage and all that. And even though Azure is not as you know, there's not a huge difference in terms of years between AWS and Azure. When Microsoft came out with Azure, it was mostly past services. It did actually mm -hmm. didn't offer VMs at all from the beginning, right? It took him a couple of years to actually start doing infrastructure as a service. And in the meantime, AWS was just consuming and consuming and consuming all these clients that all right. they wanted to do was to put their VMs in the cloud. That's it, right? Right. <laughs> and, and Microsoft is coming in here, for example, in, in the SQL Server space is, is very popular because my, uh, Microsoft had SQL Server as a service, the Azure SQL database for years before it actually gave you just put SQL Server on a VM and that's it, right? <laughs> right. So they had to actually roll back. They, I guess they, they didn't they didn't quite understand the early market of the cloud, right? And they found themselves a little bit behind uh, compared to AWS, right? With the first you're, generation, you're right. like you said. They presume the jump. They presume modernization exactly, yes. before migration. And in fact, when you look at VMware's first deployment into the cloud, it was really just extending their virtual private cloud into the cloud, right? Mm -hmm. They were they were essentially saying, "I can migrate a VM from your on-premise into your, you know, AWS cloud environment, and so that it operates just like another destination. It's just another address, mm -hmm. and it's less helpful when you actually modernize those applications into the cloud native. Then, in fact, the VMware deployment didn't, in fact, work, and it mm -hmm. broke the system." But it was easier for a CIO to to shift that way because at least they were still using the same tools that their existing staff could use. In fact, that was one of the biggest problems with shifting to the cloud is that all of my team skill set was specifically um, creating virtualization with VMware. Um, 
And then how am I going to upscale or change the scale for these people to learn what it means to run, you know, in a Kubernetes cluster in the cloud? That they're not necessarily the same skills. It's not necessarily even the same people. So mm -hmm. that that shift was was what slowed down most of that IaaS. Same with like, for example, storage admins too, right? A lot of times, obviously, it's like if you plan a full cloud migration, and maybe you had it. Some people, some places, they even had like full-time backups manager, like an IT person that their job was just to make sure that the Commvault was backing up everything every day and everything breaks every day and they go in and they fix their Commvault every day. <laughs> and yep. all these all these uh, roles, they just, you know, they kind of like fade away as you move more and more of these systems to the cloud. So there's definitely an area there of resistance too, right? The staff might be feeling like you're, you know, you're automating them away kind of thing, right? Well, I'm old enough to have led a team that looked like this. I had a VP of application. I had a VP of infrastructure. Under the VP of infrastructure was each discipline, essentially a director of voice, a director of um, Windows compute, a mm -hmm. director of, of Linux compute, a director of AIX compute, storage, backup, and others, right? And then mm -hmm. architecture, network stuff. Um, and they were separate entities. As soon as I moved into a much more virtualized data center, I then needed to create a completely separate team called the virtualization team because that was full stack mm. from network to storage to compute. Yeah. And the compute didn't matter. And they had to operate as one because they had a different technology, i.e. all the ESX type software that none of the others could use. Fortunately, that prepared you for cloud because now I could have a cloud team that worried mm -hmm. about migrating and modernizing to the cloud, but it still required additional skill set, right? It still required arguably additional people. I couldn't necessarily reskill and upskill my existing staff to support that, but at least gives a gives gave me a pattern to sort of create the cloud version, which is why when we get into much more advanced things like uh, quantum computing or edge computing where I can use the exact same model in my IT to support that next evolution of where you might, my applications might be running. Uh, how do you recommend people balance this, this act of innovation versus, you know, less risk for, for some things, right? Like not everything has to be built on like the latest NoSQL or the latest, you know, application uh, JavaScript stack that somebody created yesterday. How do you recommend people balance this this necessity to innovate at the same time with obviously being able to run operationally stable, secure performance systems? So here's what's interesting. This battle between consistency, that would be the desire of the organization, the desire of the CIO, with innovative technology learning that comes from the practitioners, that that gap has widened over time, it has not mm -hmm. come closer. So what you're finding is the practitioners want to learn more and new all the time. They yes. want more certification. <laughs> they want to learn and understand. And, and the cloud technology. providers feed this, right? Obviously, like the, the, the rate of release and services and change is relentless, right? And that's every day yes. there's something new for you to chase, to try to learn. I have like 10 million tabs open with, you know, the same thing. I fall for the same trick. Exactly. But the CIOs, the organizations are still have a desire for consistency because change 
while good in the grand sense, is a risk inducer, mm-hmm. right? I can't just change the OS and upgrade the platform because I don't know what the net impact to my 5,000 workloads might be. Because if the core systems are down, that's a dramatic impact to the bottom and top line of my business. Mm-hmm. right? if my website's down because I decided to patch an OS that I shouldn't have because I did it too quickly, that's a problem. Right. If I if nobody can go to their bank, if nobody can get a product, if nobody can go to a store and get chips, that's a problem. Right. So I how am I battling consistency and governance with technology innovation? Um, and what we're seeing is there's this new refocus of change as a design pattern. Okay. So I'm having a lot of conversations with CIOs that say, you know what? I'm not going to invest five years in infrastructure. I'm going to invest one year in infrastructure with the assumption that next year the new version will be better and faster and denser than the previous version. Mm -hmm. So I will presume and pay less for um, a piece of hardware that I can easily replace, which means it has to be abstracted from any other piece of hardware. The same will be true with software. Mm -hmm. I will buy software with the explicit purpose to displace it within 12 months. So I need to ensure that it's abstracted enough from the rest of the applications that it's siloed enough that it's zero trust implemented. So it doesn't negatively affect either security, performance, and availability than any other service. It was really the invent, the advent of the SOA deployment, which moved mm-hmm. into services design, which is, you know, and they included the ESB type work. So now I have you know, an abstracted set of applications that are integrated together and an abstracted series of infrastructure that I could easily replace. It'll take time for me to get to a place where where replaceability becomes the most important non-functional requirement, but is in fact the big truism now. It's not about performance and availability. It's about an ability to replace the infrastructure software when that new version comes around. So that's trying to balance my security and performance concerns with, you know, the innovation that's happening in the practitioner side. The the shiny new, the chase the shiny new thing syndrome. Correct. Yeah. Do you find that the move to services oriented architectures, microservices, et cetera, it has paid off versus the classic three layer, you know, application design that we had, you know, for a long time? Uh, the, do 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 orgs really end up being you know more flexible? Do they end up being able to release code faster, et cetera, et cetera? All these other promises. Because yeah. I find also some other people instead is they ended up with a bunch of um, leaky abstractions over there. You know, there's not there's they have all these APIs, but there's always like one exception, one thing that's allowed to connect, for example, to the backend database that kind of like violates the principles. I find that quite a bit happens. People put in exceptions all the time. Um, also, sometimes they, you know, to what we were talking about, there's the dependencies problem where even though you move into this, you know, service oriented or microservice architecture for your entire org, you still don't have control over all the dependencies consuming the, the same API. So the problem doesn't quite go away. Um, do, do you find it has paid off? Do you recommend people still, you know, this is the way we do things now until the next big uh, enterprise architecture passion thing comes along? 
as long as the philosophy and the technical guidance is practical and within reason and by that i mean this if you expect the bank's it to work just like amazon.com yeah that will be a fail right if, if you expect services to be refreshed and updated three times a day that will be a fail but if you abstract enough of those um you know unique functions that could be deployed as services and presume that those services are dedicated to a single line of business versus the enterprise as a whole mm -hmm. then it works but if you make this assumption that i'll be able to create this unique service called get client and this get client will be a enterprise service to to be consumed from all five line of businesses uh then it will fail because four of those five line of businesses will want to build their own and mm -hmm. won't want to pay for you creating it. <laughs> okay. <yeah. laughs> right. In fact, we, we have this conversation all the time where we think the, you know, especially large organizations, governments, telcos, big healthcare, uh, big banks, that it's one enterprise budget. In mm -hmm. fact, that's not true. That's um, true. Yeah. For the most part, they're individual line of business budgets. And in fact, some of those budgets align so directly with the line of business that the EVP of the line of business actually controls the IT budget. Mm -hmm. that's so doing anything that's foundational or framework other than security is almost impossible. If I want to create a enterprise data warehouse that crosses five line of businesses, that project will fail because four of those line of businesses will not want you to create a platform to which they didn't have any involvement in mm. order to you know, consume, right? They wanna consume their own, they have their own time, time uh, life cycles, their own agility requirements, their own risk tolerance, right? The core yeah. banking environment has no risk. The investment banking has 100% risk. They're fine, right? So it just doesn't mesh. So mm -hmm. you, you have to think about IT not being always enterprise unless you're a small, you know, mid-sized organization. Now, be before we go, before we go, I want to get your your thoughts on one last thing, and it's this. Uh, I'm sure you're familiar nowadays over the last year uh, or so. The term of uh, talking more specific about data architectures, the data mesh idea has you know caught on. It, it has become a meme, right? People throw the term data mesh all around apparently everybody and their dog needs to be building a data mesh in their organization <laughs> and to people that are not familiar please just go ahead and search online for the data mesh uh you'll find that you know the whole article with all the details but basically that the gist of it is you know uh distributed instead of a centralized uh view of data which is but most you know big data warehousing data lake projects are instead we take a distributed approach right and each line of business to your example would have their own data infrastructure they would have their own data engineers doing pipelines and they they would just publish data products for other people to consume and that's it and you don't really get access if you're if you're let's say marketing you don't get access to finance other than through the finance data products right do you find this also is it realistic is it only at a certain scale that it becomes realistic do you you find that it's maybe uh overplaying the positives i would just want to take your opinion on it uh, i think it's as valuable of a philosophy as blockchain is <laughs> okay and what do you think <laughs> of blockchain <then? laughs> so be more specific i think 
I think a distributed ledger <laughs> blockchain implementation is valuable when I'm transacting outside of a single organization, right? Where I need to follow a financial transaction through 15 organizations and be able to have some semblance of security across those institutions. Uh, I find data mesh as valuable um, outside the more valuable outside the organization than I do inside the organization. Okay. Mostly because inside the organization, philosophically creating a marketplace to be consumed effectively is just an option. Mm -hmm. So if I was line of business one and I was creating a series of services to be consumed internally and line of bus business two through five now has the option to choose the internal service or a series of external services that are delivered and priced and engineered better, I would more likely choose the external service or okay. build the service myself. Mm -hmm. That's just how, with the very, very, very small exception of access, accessibility to data that I currently don't have. And know that it is very, very rare for a second line of business to care about the data that's created in the first line of business. Okay. You know, the, there, there's always this, there's always this dream of customer 360, mm -hmm. right? Where, you know, a single customer that has a relationship with a telco will be able to go in and say, you know what? Um, I consume ISP services from you, cell phone services from you, residential line from you. I mean, even have a small business. Wouldn't it be great if I had a single portal or single, you know, bill on every, mm -hmm. any particular time? Realistically, it's not a requirement or it's a facade I can create from the marketing department. I don't actually require all that data to be collected because uh, there's no incentive for any one of those line of business to subscribe or pay for that. That's just mm -hmm. the reality of the situation. So even if I, as a single line of business, put together a series of marketplace data subscriptions, it will be very rare for anybody to actually subscribe to it. <laughs> okay. So while philosophically data mesh would be an amazing thing to implement, it feels like an architectural journey than it is an actual practical deployment of mm. technology. Fair enough. Fair enough. I, uh, my, my personal opinion is that what I the the thing that I like about it that I would, you know, rescue out of the whole idea or philosophy is the distributed data domain ownership and mm. expertise, right? Which is something that I I think every company as they implement data governance they should approach it that way right every line of business you should appoint somebody to be your data sme to be your owner of data related decisions to be able to talk to other people across to just say like hey we need this we need that or we're going to publish this we're going to publish that kind of thing but the the bigger you know boundary settings and you know everything gated and even more more uh, unrealistic for small and medium businesses is that everybody also has pipeline and data engineer developers. That's even okay. better. Um, yeah, those those things are a little bit you know a tougher tougher pill to swallow for sure. Um, thank you, Paul, for the time. Uh, appreciate it. And thank you everybody else for listening. And until next time, bye bye. Navigating the datascape. <laughs>